Thank you all very much. Uh, can you all hear me? Okay? Great. Uh, welcome to this uh, session on the political economy of development. Uh, we're really uh, honored to have two very distinguished uh, speakers, uh, Tim Besley of LSC and Naveen Kumar, the Development Commissioner of uh, Bihar. Uh, let me just open with a few words about the session, the timing, and give you some more information about our speakers, and then I'll let them uh, take over. Um, the role of political economy is widely recognized as being central to the process of economic development, and increase, an increasing amount of academic work is focused on issues of political economy and development in, in recent years, and I suspect um, Tim Besley will be discussing some of that work. Uh, the, the question at hand today is how that research and how the insights of that research uh, bear on policy debates in development today. What have we learned that we can take to action in terms of uh, policy? And really, uh, I can think of no one better to give insight into this area than um, from the academic side than uh, Dr. Tim Besley, Professor Tim Besley uh, of the LSC. Uh, Tim combines excellence in academic research and also uh, policy training. He is the Kuwait Professor of Economics and Political Science here at LSC. He's also a member of the Executive Committee of IGC. Tim, until very recently, until a few weeks ago, served on the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. So he has really extensive uh, real-world experience on economic policy. He's also uh, had many academic honors. He's been uh, editor of uh, the Economic Journal, co-editor of the American Economic Review. He's a fellow of the British Academy and the Econometric Society. Uh, he's president-elect of the European Economic Association and in 2005 won the biannual uh, uh, Janssen Award for his research. Uh, in terms of Tim's academic background, he was educated at Oxford in PPE and uh, also received an MPhil and DPhil in economics. Uh, there. So uh, uh, that's the, the sort of standard by. I, let me just say a few words. From an academic point of view, Tim is, is, has made seminal contributions in public finance, uh, political economy theory, development economics, and has a series of papers, many of them uh, joint with Robin Burgess, um, on public policy issues in India that give him tremendous insight into these issues. Mr. Naveen Kumar will be speaking second. Uh, he's been a member of the Indian Administrative Service, the Senior Civil Service of India, uh, for 34 years. He has extensive experience within Bihar and also at the central government level in a number of different sectoral uh, areas, um, including in um, education, social security, youth affairs, water, energy, industry, media, IT, finance. Through the course of his career, he's held leading positions. He's currently development commissioner for Bihar. The state of Bihar is one of India's poorest, but in these past few years uh, has made uh, really remarkable strides. And I, I expect we'll be hearing about uh, some of that progress uh, today. He, he also has experience internationally. He was technical advisor to the government of Sierra Leone for the management of their uh, food aid programs uh, under the Commonwealth Technical Cooperation uh, Program. And uh, Mr. Kumar has also been the head of the National TV of India, uh, Durdarshan, and served as its director general from 2004 to 2006. 
So really, we have two distinguished speakers. Let me not delay you hearing them anymore. I'll uh, start with uh, Professor Tim Besley, who has about 40 minutes. Thank you very much. Now, if you hadn't already guessed looking at Ted how young he is, let me reinforce that in another way. Um, Ted remarked that uh, uh, the, the uh, developed political economy and development was now a, a very active research field, um, but that does reflect a very recent perspective. I remember we're all sort of prisoners of our own uh, experience. Um, now, where is my presentation? It claims, oh, it claims it's a PowerPoint. It's not. Okay. Um, so... Um, I remember very well when I took my PhD and and moved to my first job at Princeton um, encountering a very distinguished economist I won't name him uh, though some people may have heard this story with his name attached in the past now a dear friend of mine who, uh, who asked me what I was interested in and I said I was interested in economic development he looked at me and he said uh, you know I used to be interested in economic development and then I realized all the problems of economic development were political so I gave it up Um, in some respects my career since has been a response to that thinking well why should economists stay so removed from these issues why aren't we trying to integrate insights from, from politics into economics and to try and meet the challenge of all the problems of economic development being political, to try and forge and to, and to create a, a, a real political economy of development. Um, just need to do that. There we go. Now, what is political economy all about, and what are the main themes? Well, I think, as I see it, the main issues are how we try as economists to think about how good policies are implemented and how they're sustained. Both of those issues, I think, being extremely important in, in most countries. I think also, and I'll come to this only very briefly later, but, but, but it's uh, a, 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 another set of issues that perhaps less discussed. I think political economy is also in, important in determining which policies are used. A lot of times we spend, as economists, trying to, uh, talking to policymakers, trying to reinforce the, the, the idea that a particular instrument is suited to a particular end. And that's a, often that becomes part of the political economy, if you like, of the policy. I think another set of issues, again, that have been less explored, I think polit- politics determines which policies get evaluated and how they get evaluated, and in particular, what kind of data gets collected to evaluate policy. So the process of policy evaluation, not just the process of policy implementation, I think are part of the political process. Now, political economy goes back a long way. Indeed, our discipline at some point in its history, uh, was just called political economy. It wasn't called economics. There was no, uh, no real uh, distinction between what we, what we call economics today and what people in the past called political economy. And in fact, the less famous Keynes, John Neville Keynes, who's actually John Maynard Keynes' father, perhaps actually better known for his work in subjective probability than his work in economics, wrote a book in 1891 called The Scope and Method of Political Economy. And today, we often tell students who study economics there are two branches of economics. There's normative economics and positive economics. Well, uh, John Neville Keynes identified a third branch of economics, which he referred to, and in fact, a number of other writers in the 19th century used this term quite a lot, the art of political economy. And he says the following, when we pass to problems of taxation or problems that concern the relations of the state with trade and industry or to the general discussion of communistic and socialistic schemes, 
It's far from being the case that economic considerations hold the field exclusively. Account must be taken of the ethical, social, and political dimensions that lie outside the sphere of political economy regarded as a science. Well, I think the bit I would dispute on that is the latter part. I think you can be just as scientific in the study of those issues as you can in the study of the economics. Now, political economy concerns in studying policy have a long history, as I mentioned, although I think at some point economics divorced itself, at least mainstream economics, divorced itself to a significant extent from the study of political science and issues of that kind. Um, and certainly when, when I was brought up in the period that, that, that uh, reflects the conversation I mentioned earlier with a senior colleague in my first job, uh, it was that uh, we, we deliberately as economists separated ourselves from the study of political economy and mainstream development. Uh, and I think that was, in a way, an, an attempt to break off and say there could be a more scientific development economics that somehow didn't get embroiled in all of these very messy issues. But I think it's a measure of a self-confidence of development. that We've now come back to these and we feel we can say something about them. Uh, and I think it, from, where I, where, from where I stand, at least, uh, a lot of the issues that are studied now in the modern political economy of development literature, uh, I think are part of a broader-based resurgence of, of interest in the role of institutions in development and also the role of historical factors, because very often you're drawn from a political economy point of view to looking at quite long periods, perhaps longer periods than you might do if you were just looking at policy disembodied from the political process. Now, before I talk about political economy and what I think we've learned, and I'm going to be, as I'll explain later, quite selective in that, um, I want to just raise in your mind sort of what are four basic aspects of, uh, of the challenges of policy in general, forget the political economy specifically. One is to have the right set of policy instruments. The second is to know how policy affects outcomes. The third is to be able to derive good policy, what we would call as economists optimal policy. And then finally, trying to guarantee that the policies are used properly once you've defined what a good policy is. Now, I would argue that if you look at the recent global crisis to illustrate this, all of those aspects of policymaking have been very apparent. Um, so if you talk about having the right set of policy instruments, should a central bank be able to use quantitative easing? How should, should banks be recapitalized? How do you set up programs to do that? That would be having the right set of policy instruments. Uh, knowing how policy affects outcomes, well, if the central bank uses these, how on earth does it affect the economy? Uh, those are issues about knowing how policy works. Uh, Optimal policy is, is unconventional monetary policy the best instrument for tackling the crisis and at what level should it be used? That's an example of the third. And the fourth, uh, will central banks have the right incentives to withdraw monetary accommodation when the time comes? That's a, a, a measure of the use of those policies. So I would argue that in any particular aspect of policy you can see, just as just an illustration, uh, all of these four aspects. Now, I, what, what I, of course, political economy isn't present in all of these. It's particularly present in the fourth, guaranteeing that policies are used. And I argued a moment ago that it's also important in whether we have the right policy instruments. Often we want to study that issue. Uh, and to the extent that we learn the second from evaluation studies, it may also be important there too. Today I'm going to discuss four very selective areas in which we've been doing research uh, in political economy and try and weave them together. I'm not going to try discuss them in a kind of compartmentalized way. I'm going to try and discuss them as a kind of joined up and I'll move from one to the other. I'm going to talk a little bit about the debates about democracy and autocracy. I'm going to talk about the role of political competition in policy making. I'm going to talk about the role of media in development. And finally, I'm going to talk about accountability issues in general. 
Uh, and what I'm not planning to do, uh, were this a, a lecture in one of the LSE courses, it would be my duty to do this, is to survey the body of excellent literature that we now have. What I want to do is to introduce to many of you who perhaps not been following this literature some aspects of the toolkit and the way that we, we're bringing it to bear on specific policy issues. It's not to give you in any sense a comprehensive study, uh, a comprehensive view of what's gone on. And of course, given that I'm presenting this, it's going to be very reflective of my own uh, take on some issues. But there are many things that were actually one rather gratifying thing when I thought, well, how am I going to try and distill some flavor of what we're doing to this group? I could think of an enormous number of different research programs that have gone on I could have used to illustrate how political economy is influencing the way we think about development policy. Um, so I'm, in that sense, don't believe that I picked even the ones that are necessarily the most important. They're just to illustrate how we're approaching those issues. Um, I think I've already said this, the political economy literature, in a sense, is growing, I think, to at some level quite, uh, into quite a mature body of literature uh, because it's, it's really providing quite systematic ways of thinking about all of these issues. To cut to the chase, there's two things that matter when you're making policy, I would argue. One is incentives, and that's been studied, uh, of course, not necessarily in political economy, but by economists forever. The question of how do you provide the right incentives to policymakers. Uh, that's broadly uh, one set of issues. It's kind of motherhood and apple pie of political economy. The other issue, which has perhaps less been studied historically, uh, but I would argue is still pretty important in these debates, is what I call the selection, namely guaranteeing that the right people be they the right, most competent, the most honourable, the most honest, are picked to become policymakers. Now, some people, that's not an entirely uncontentious point. There are some people who believe you can never rely in any system in government on having the right people. In other words, you've got to put institutions in place that work under the most extreme and negative conditions, because sooner or later, you'll get a scandal operating those institutions, and they ought to be robust against that. But that's, a, that's a, I think, quite an extreme view and one that I personally don't adhere to uh, for reasons that I'll come to later. Um, I think it's fair to say, when you look at the variety of governance institutions uh, across the world, um, we, 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 we're doing a lot better at being able to systematise our knowledge about democratic settings than other forms of government. Uh, that's partly because that may, I mean, that may be misplaced to the extent that we think we understand how elections work, for example. There's a body of knowledge about where, how people are likely to vote, how parties are likely to compete for those votes, how institutions, whether you've got, say, a proportional representation system or first-past-the-post, might shape those incentives. It's fair to say, I think, there's a systematized body of knowledge, and I could, I could refer you to textbooks where you could pick those up, and you could kind of learn what we think we know. But, of course, if you're studying the political economy of development rather than the political economy of advanced countries, one thing that you have to think harder about, is how do I model other forms of government? Because other forms of government are, are widely seen, and we really need to get a handle on a wider form of institutions than just a very stylized picture of democratic institutions. And I'm going to talk, therefore, later about some, a few of those issues. Uh, the kind of economic theory that's been developed in the area generally tries to understand how these institutions work and then to generate hypotheses and from those hypotheses, we try and test them and try and get a feel for whether or not they're valid descriptions or valid hypotheses of, about the world. Now, I'm going to start by talking about de democracy and the role of democracy in promoting or not promoting development. Now, 
I actually don't think this is a particularly well-posed or important question. So you might think, well, why am I starting with it? But it's actually a good way into uh, a lot of the other issues I want to talk about. Um, and I, the reason why, at some level, I don't think it's an issue is because uh, I think most, of, mo most people who reflect on democracy and its role in society probably are going to reach the conclusion quite quickly that it's a good in and of itself. Uh, that many of the things that come with democracy, freedom of expression, uh, and uh, certain kinds of tolerance and rights, of course, they may not necessarily come with democracies, and we see some democracies that vary on that dimension, particularly when we get into trying to measure this. By and large, people will say that it's hard to argue against being democratic in a broad, in, its, in terms of its broad uh, contribution to society, to society. But there are questions, though, about how, those, how the structure of institutions, particularly the conduct of elections, does affect the performance of economies in the selection of economic policies. Now, um, the, the, this is a, the debate that I think has been going on, has actually gone on in political science much more than economics for a long time, is to understand, first of all, if you're going to have sustainable democratic institutions, what are the preconditions that you need for that? Uh, to work, and there's been debates uh, around the role of education and, and other things. Um, and the, 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 so there's one set of issues around the sustainability of democracy. How do you guarantee that democracy actually works? And the other is understanding whether the incentives that democracy creates improves the quality of policies and improves the sustainability of policies. Well, when you begin to look in the fact, into the facts, however you look at them, uh, and I'm going to just really illustrate facts in a very, very broad brush way. So, you, so I, I just want to warn you, I'm not, I'm not trying to be deeply scientific about this. Um, there, you, you begin to kind of form doubts, even about the theory that lies behind propositions around the way democracy can improve performance. But let's begin with the data, not with the theory. Um, there are lots of ways of looking at this. And of course, the second you want to look at this empirically, you have to take a stance on how to measure democracy which countries in the world are democratic by any reasonable measure. And in fact, there's a huge industry out there of people generating series and measures and, uh, and allowing us to, uh, to look at them and, and to convince us that theirs is better than anyone else's. But the one that's the industry leader is something called Polity 4, which most people, when, they, when they're asked the question, you know, when did Britain become a democracy, they'll run to, their, uh, to the web, they'll go to the Polity 4 data, and they'll look at how Polity 4 rates it. And it's based on quite a complicated, I'm not going to go into the detail, but it's based on quite a complicated assessment of a whole variety of criteria, which uh, ultimately people then try to reduce to a single zero-one. I mean, of course, that in and of itself may be a crazy way to think about the world. That there's an answer to the question, there was a particular date on which country X became democratic, and just before that date, it wasn't. So, so there's lots of issues here about how we think about that question. Um, but by and large, the literature that's looked at these issues and debated these issues has tried to turn this into a simple, uh, discrete uh, measure. Now, um, the nice thing about doing these kinds of exercises, and this is a link back to something I said earlier, is you quickly get interested in, historic, in history. Because the data, actually, once you ask a question like this, allow you to look over quite long periods in history. We have these polity data going back to 1800. So you can actually begin to look in the history of the developed world as well as looking at the, the, the differences between countries at the present time. Uh, and so one naturally gets into some of these, these issues. Um, uh, I'll skip that. 
So let's have a look at, at, some, at some pictures that come out of these simple data as a way into discussing what I think are more interesting issues. And I should say these uh, pictures here were lovingly ripped off from my dear friend, Torsten Persson, who gave them, I saw them give them in a talk, and I asked if he'd send them to me. So, so uh, anyway, Torsten, Torsten looked at the data, so I thought it was very cool. So here's one way to look at the data. It's not actually the normal way of looking at it. And that's actually in terms of thinking not of democracy as a one-off, what's happening today, but actually looking at the history of democratic experience. Uh, and so on the, on, the, on the horizontal axis in this picture is the proportion of years since 1800, uh, between 1800 and 2000 for which you were, sorry, it's 1848 and 2000 for which you were a democracy. Okay. And uh, depending on when the, when the polity data tell you you became democratic, you'll flip from zero to one. You may flip back again, I'll talk about that again in a moment. But as you'll see, there's a very large number of countries on the left-hand side who've no experience of democracy throughout this whole period. So if we're going to have only expertise in political economy and studying democratic institutions, we're neglecting everybody on the left-hand side sort of almost by, uh, by fiat. Uh, and what you'll see is a pattern that everybody knows about, is that there is a correlation between democratic experience and income per capita. And what people have debated about endlessly, and I think rather hopelessly, is the question of which way the causation runs. I just don't think that, personally, is a particularly interesting issue, but it's one that people sometimes can find themselves drawn into. Um, what happens when we look uh, country uh, by country? So I'll pick a few countries for you to look at. Uh, this is the uh, income and the democratic experience of the, of the UK. Uh, the UK became democratic according to polity in actually 1832. There was a major reform act that gave the right to vote. As you'll see, therefore, thereafter, there's no reversion. Democracy continues, income per capita rises, uh, and, uh, and democratic experience accumulates smoothly. Um, some people would like to say, oh, if you just looked at this one chart... Doesn't it look like uh, democracy causes growth? That's absurd, but uh, anyway. Uh, what happens in Spain? Uh, this is why you've got to be really careful. Um, here's Spain. Spain goes along until uh, uh, the, uh, about 1870 uh, as, a, as a classified as non-democratic. It then gets a little bit of democracy, then has a longish period of democracy. Thereafter, of course, the period may remember after the Spanish Civil War when Franco was in power. And uh, that looks pretty good from a growth point of view. It looks like uh, Franco was no great, uh, great harm to Spanish growth, at least based on this one data point. Uh, and then, uh, of course, after Franco's death, it, it becomes democratic again and starts to accumulate democratic experience. I'll show you another one, uh, Argentina. Uh, again, sort of similar in the sense to the Spanish case, to the extent that there's reversions. And again, uh, the uh, democratic experience during that period declines and then rises again. And then finally, uh, of course, a case we all know about, but, uh, China, which has almost no experience of, uh, of uh, democracy, uh, and uh, yet uh, has had a very, at least very recently, uh, a great deal of economic growth. So I'm not suggesting, I, I really want to just use these pictures to provoke you for thinking, well, could, does that mean, you know, could there be a link between one thing and the other? And my answer would be, well, we really need to dig down. We really need to get beyond anything to do with the averages here. The averages are almost certainly not that interesting. Uh, what probably matters, uh, and I think you can conclude this much, a much greater length, having looked at the evidence that we've been presented with on these questions, and conclude it's really the differences that matter. And there really is considerable heterogeneity. So this uh, is a picture of growth performances among countries based on uh, regimes that lasted at least two years, 
and compares regimes that were classified as uh, autocratic compared to regimes that are classified as democratic. And two interesting facts come out of those growth performances. One is that um, autocracy looks kind of riskier in the sense that you've got more, uh, more, more downside risk in autocracy. You've got uh, a lower mean and, uh, and, uh, uh, and you've got quite a lot of upside. So there are some uh, autocratic successes that you have to account for if you're thinking about these issues. Uh, this is it's actually even clearer if you take a five-year window. So this is only among regimes that lasted five years. Uh, you essentially get a very nice picture comparing the performance of autocracy and democracy. But what's clear, what screams out of this, if you're going to study this issue, the distribution is what you want to study, not the means. So, And the temptation among many people is to just study the average differences rather than trying to get at why you get such dramatically different performances within regimes that are apparently described as similar. So the research challenge is much more around that, explaining the heterogeneity, than it really is about explaining the means. And I think that's the message that I want, I want you to, to, to take away. And so I'm going to give you some examples for, th for, thinking, for thinking about that. Why do we think that some regimes, and let's kind of a little bit lose the autocracy-democracy label for this purpose, why do we think different regimes will deliver different economic performance? What do we think are the factors behind that? And then we can think about how the particular institutional arrangements that they might use would contribute to that. And in a nutshell, I wanna, I, if, I, if I write down my stylized theoretical models, which I'm tempted to do, there are broadly two sets of factors that come out of a whole wide class of models, and, 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 and they're the following two. One is, how far are we able to institutionalize common interest use of the state? It's very clear that if we look at some countries, the state is used for broad public benefit as opposed to a vehicle for private rent-seeking. Sadly, there are many countries in the world where the state is essentially an institution that mediates between private entrepreneurs who try to use the state to extract as many resources for their own preferred cause or group compared to others. It's kind of a vehicle for that. Uh, and the question is, can you institutionalize and how can you institutionalize a system of government which diminishes the use of the state as a private interest? Uh, and I I'm not going to give you a complete answer to that, but I think very much the kinds of issues I've been interested in studying in the political economy literature are to understand cases where you are able to do that and to understand the institutional basis for that. Of course, it may not just be the formal political institutions. It could be to do with the underlying political culture and the way identities are shaped, the nature of fractionalization. There's a whole set of issues that go into that, of which the political institutions may only be one. And then the second, which I will claim is extremely important, but I'm not going to be able to convince you only on the basis of the evidence today, is the ability to kick out either incompetent or dishonest policymakers. Uh, a singular fact about the world is how many policymakers who preside over periods of intense economic decline do not lose their job as a consequence. And we, we can all think of our favorite examples from our favorite country to illustrate that. But the fact of the matter is, perhaps this, the only role of democracy that really sticks in the end is the possibility of getting bad, rid of bad, pe bad people from public office. And I think we grossly underestimate its role if we don't uh, factor that in. That's where I come back to my point about selection earlier. The, the, the sort of prevailing view in a lot of the literature in political economy, a lot of discussion in political economy, neglects that important selection role in democracy. But I actually think it's first order, and there are too many examples from history that would, uh, would illustrate that the, the importance of the need to get rid of people when they underperform. Okay, so let me now try and 
getting a little bit into the question of why there is heterogeneity. I'm going to do it in the context of only one dimension. So you could, I'm not, you know, I'm not claiming here before anyone thinks I am that this is even the most important dimension of heterogeneity between democracies. But it's one I think I'm getting, I have a, a moderate degree of understanding on, uh, and therefore uh, I, want to, uh, I want to talk about it. Uh, and that's the question of how does the extent of political competition, however conceived, contribute towards the working of democracy? And I want to challenge us with a particular example to think about, and that's the example of one-party states. One-party states are often observed even within democracies. And uh, an example that, we, that many of us in the room will know is the example of the Congress Party, which of course no longer, India is no longer a one-party state. For, for a very long period of time, essentially the Congress Party, more or less at the federal level, dominated electoral institutions. And there's a question of to what extent should that be a problem? Should we worry about that? Uh, and some people thought that was an issue. If you don't have serious competition, how are you ever going to perform in office? Because it was pretty clear for a long period that Congress is... Uh, hold on office was pretty unassailable for a long period in the post-independence period. A perhaps more contemporary ongoing example is the ANC in South Africa, uh, where again this debate uh, goes along. Uh, can uh, you have sustainable good economic policy when you have a single party? Now of course there are lots of good reasons why the ANC was a broad political coalition born out of the end of apartheid. I'm certainly not questioning that. But the, the broader issue comes up you know, to what extent can a one-party state, even in a democratic context, be, uh, be problematic? Now, one case, though, where I think almost nobody disagrees that it's pretty problematic was the case of the U.S. South um, in the uh, period before the 1960s, when essentially, because of a series of uh, mainly somewhat legislative interventions, but, uh, but other, other things too, essentially guaranteed a monopoly of a single party, namely the Democrats, in the U.S. South, which institutionalized uh, racism in the U.S. South. And uh, it has been claimed, although who knows uh, how far this is, this is the case, that the fact that there was no political competition allowed, uh, allowed that, uh, essentially allowed that to, 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 to prevail over that period. Now, the intriguing case, and, and this is proven, of, of all the papers I've written, it's the, it's the most uh, controversial, but it's, it's finally, I hope, getting published. Um, uh, is to think that there might be some link in the context of the U.S. South uh, between uh, the extent of political competition and the performance of the economies and the kinds of policies that were implemented in the South. And in fact, what I argue in, in a paper with, with uh, Torsten Pearson and Daniel Stern is that there's a real close link between the evolution of political competition and the economic performance of the states that you could argue actually represents a real sea change in policy as political competition developed. In particular, the, there was a particular class in the U.S. South during the early period of the 20th century that had a strong interest in maintaining a very, a, an agricultural economy with low wages so that you could run plantation agriculture with low wages and really didn't want to face any political competition to disrupt the economy. Anyway, that's an example. I think it, it is only an example. But I think it gets to the question, does it really matter whether we have political competition? Well, where do I want to apply uh, those ideas? Um, I'll come, come to that now, um, is in the link to decentralization. Because one thing that many governments have a fondness for uh, right now, for very good reasons, is to create more decentralized government. Uh, and there are many good reasons to think that that could be a worthwhile endeavor. 
there could be improved accountability, um, uh, in particular associated with that. But one issue that rarely surfaces in the debates that I see on that is just how far you're able to create uh, a viable political, local political competition, which is a precondition of being able to have effective local democracy. Now, actually, I'll illustrate actually with an example from the UK, which is an incredibly centralized country. Uh, and the history of centralization in the UK is that there was a lot, there was, it was almost impossible, given that we have two parties that essentially are more or less class-based, to create enough areas of the UK in which you could have viable political competition. Because you go around the country and almost all the local governments are fiefdoms, not almost all, but a good fraction are fiefdoms of one party. So gradually, as a res in a response, this happened at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, in response to very, very high levels of corruption in local government, central government began uh, at Syrian to remove the authority of local government and, and put it up to the central level. So that's a sort of historical counterexample to the current uh, uh, pro-decentralization debate. Now, I'm not, of course, claiming that you cannot have effective local democracy. All I'm trying to claim is that you have to think about this issue. And it's a good example of why you really do need to think through the political economy in that, in that area, in that particular context. Um, and indeed, many of the arguments for decentralization really have to have a kind of argument about displacing traditional political elites and trying to generate genuine competition for office. Uh, and uh, you can, so, so a large number of the situations I've studied, I particularly studied local democracy in South India, um, are, you, you can really look that there are different contexts. So it's a good example where you might begin with this question at the sort of macro country level, but actually you see it playing out at a very local level. You can look at different villages in South India and see different villages with very patently different forces shaping the nature of political competition. Now, of course, it's, it's very context-specific. In some cases, it's the nature of the caste structure. It might be the landowning structure. But those things play out in a very important way. So it's the kind of thing that when, if you're as a policymaker thinking about, I'm going to decentralize, how am I going to get decentralization to work? I would say at your peril, would you ignore those kinds of issues? Would you ignore the issue of how you can create viable competition for office and competition that really does guarantee that bad policymakers are thrown out of office, poor quality public services are punished? Um, now, there are ways you can try and institutionalize this, and there are some good examples in practice that have been used, and some have been studied, actually, in some very nice papers. Um, one is to, in some countries, this has worked moderately well, but actually, I think, is a mixed bag, is actually trying to explicitly get rid of parties at the local level. So some countries have tried to institute decentralization and legislated that nobody can stand in a local election on a party ticket. Now, actually, that's a mixed bag, partly in terms of the experience of that in different countries, but also there is something about creating viable political organization that we do like, namely the ability to have more long-term behavior in politics. I mean, one thing that parties do over and above individual reputations is to create long-term incentives for politics, whereas if it's down to individual reputations, often that's problematic. And, and Roger Myerson has written extensively on the difference between collective and individual reputations. And I do think that's an incredibly important issue when we think about that. So I think just banning political parties might sound like a good idea, but actually has some drawbacks. 
The other, which I think is, is interesting and be used extensively and, and very notably in terms of it's, it's been studied in, in India, is the use of reservation in local government. So you actually mandate that certain groups get represented in local government. So in India, there's been a reservation for women, there's been a reservation for lower caste, for, for scheduled caste and scheduled tribes, uh, and those as an attempt to break barriers to entry and to enhance the nature of political competition. Now, of course, again, it's a bit double-edged, because effectively, by creating reservation, you're diminishing one dimension of political competition, because you're only making a particular representative position open to a given type of individual. So that's restricting the demand of competition. But in terms of getting some of the traditional elites uh, to step aside, it can be very powerful. And Esther Duflo, who I don't think Esther, Esther's coming tomorrow, actually giving a lecture tomorrow, I've written a wonderful paper on looking at women's res um, reservation in Rajasthan and uh, West Bengal, which finds that in villages that have more women's representation, there's more provision of some kinds of public goods, suggesting that opening up political competition in this way can have a real impact on policy. Another area, which again is very contentious, but, but has not really been researched as much as it could have been by the political economy literature, is the way you draw up political boundaries. Now, one of the ways the Democrats maintained their power in the South was to make sure they always drew up the political boundaries in a way that maximized democratic representation. And that part of the way the power of the Democrats in the US South was broken was by forcibly redrawing a certain number of those boundaries. So the question of how you draw political boundaries is also, I think, absolutely key. And more generally, though, and this ties to a theme, Ted's going to tell me I have no time in a minute. I don't know how much time I have. Six minutes. Uh, six minutes, good. More generally to the theme of, so political competition is just one dimension of a broader theme, which is how you create incentives for oversight and scrutiny and linked to accountability. So my sort of bottom line argument is why might political competition work well or, or improve things? It's because it improves the institutions in which accountability takes place. And accountability has both aspects of incentives and selection. It means somebody who does something good or does something bad is either rewarded or punished for that. Uh, and the other is that uh, somebody who's a bad, uh, corrupt or whatever is kicked out of office. And the accountability debate has been absolutely central to understanding um, uh, issues in, in, in political economy of development um, and, uh, and how we create responsive states. So the last few things I want to talk about are around that theme. I want to therefore in that context tackle the following issue. Why do we ever see successful autocracies? What can we say about those examples, particularly in the right-hand tail of that distribution I talked about? And I'm going to tell you a, a, an accountability story. That's, that's the link. Um, now, one view of successful autocracy is it's an accident. Basically, if you're lucky, you get a benevolent, benign autocrat. If you're unlucky, you don't. And that's tough. So there's that dis probability distribution is just a random draw from a distribution of types. That means you've either got a good or a terrible guy. And you know, once you're stuck with an autocrat, you know, maybe you can mount a military coup, maybe they die in office, but that's the best you can hope for. That's kind of one very deterministic view of autocratic government. But I would argue a very uh, counterfactual and certainly a historical view. So one thing that I got interested in when I was trying to explain successful autocracy, so I wrote a paper with Masa Kudamatsu called Making Autocracy Work, uh, was on the role of the selectorate 
in, uh, in autocracies, in disciplining and selecting incumbents. Because actually when you dig down and begin to look at the institutions of autocracy, you find a huge variety, just as you see in democracy, lots of different institutional arrangements, you actually see the same thing in autocracy. Of course, it's much less institutionalized, and this is something, again, that political scientists for a long time have studied, but it's rarely been brought into the kind of currency of the economic policy debate. Um, so, so I want to talk a little bit about this, uh, based on this work with, with, with Mansa. So what we did was we basically took a bunch of regimes, it was actually the data I showed you earlier, and we, we looked at the, the, the growth performance in those regimes. Uh, and we looked at particularly at the autocratic regimes, and we tried to look and see whether we could say anything about why this set of regimes that's appeared to do relatively well uh, in, in growth performance, what did they have in common? Did they look to be you know, similar in certain ways? Did the institutions work in particular ways? Now, I want to emphasize, of course, a really successful autocrat may have the ability to cook the data. Um, so, you know, there's some issue about whether we really believe the data in all autocratic governments. So that's a caveat to all of this. So uh, I'm looking, we are taking the data here at face value, but we do a wide variety of robustness checks uh, to, to try and at least worry a bit about that issue. Um, we basically looked only at regimes of the last five years, and we looked at the 80th percentile of growth among all the regimes, and we classified those as successful. Now, you're not going to see this very well, and we came up with this list of successful autocracies based purely on economic growth performance, and we subjected them to a whole battery of robustness checks to see whether, if you looked at it in different ways, they also came out. And a number of them still came out. I mean, the one I'm still deeply skeptical of uh, I've read Bob Klipgaard's book on Equatorial Guinea, but even so, that's about my knowledge uh, in, a, in a nutshell, but uh, that comes out really top of the tree as the most successful autocracy in the period that, uh, that we looked at, for which we, we had data. We looked on predominantly in the post-war period where we have more reliable GDP data for most countries. I'm not going to leave that list up too long, otherwise you'll start criticizing it immediately. Um, <laughs> what I'm going to tell you about is a bit of what we did next. You can read our paper. It, <coughs> there is a published paper, so I'll be very happy to refer you to it. Um, uh, and what we did was actually a mixture of things, because it was kind of interesting mixture for us between different, met different methods of research in social science, because what, they, what we did then was a bunch of case studies of some of those cases to try and understand they said what they had in common, and we also looked at how, whether any kind of statistical criteria of any underlying institutions and other things that we care about were correlated with being a successful autocracy. Now, by and large, we didn't find a whole lot. It was pretty hard to predict successful autocracy, we found. But when we began to look at the case studies, we did home in on this question about the role of powerful selectorates in displacing unsuccessful leaders. And we began to get something that looked like more of a, a regularity. Not to say that we couldn't pick out our counterexamples. There were some glaring counterexamples to the proposition that this was built around successful institutions. But there's one fact, a sort of resonating fact, and it is only a fact and it deserves to be taken with the appropriate grain of salt, is if you look at the rate of leadership turnover in autocracies and democracies and successful and unsuccessful autocracies. So, effectively, the probability of, a, of turnover in a successful autocracy is uh, 13%. Uh, in other words, in every year there's a 0.13 uh, probability that the leader is removed from office in any year. If you look at unsuccessful autocracies, the turnover rate is considerably lower. And one thing we noticed in the case studies was that the, 
leaders uh, were often being removed, not necessarily by being assassinated, but because the selectorate group was unhappy with the performance of the democracy, with the, with the leader, and actually maneuvered the leader to one side on the basis that their performance was substandard. Whereas unsuccessful autocrats essentially just appear to be entrenched and stay in office, and there was nothing to get rid of them, regardless of their performance. And that contrasts, so that's sort of midway. So in, in, a, in a democratic regime, the probability of annual turnover is, 20, is, is about uh, 26%. In other words, the average Democrat stays in office for four years. Um, and the, uh, so, so, so we began to look around that theme. And it was interesting because it really reinforced this idea that when you're thinking of how governance institutions work, these themes of incentives and selection keep coming back. And they keep coming back and staring you in the face and making you think, if you're going to implement policy and think about how to make policy, really think about how, in any given context, that works. And that's kind of my, my, my take home as a sort of broad issue that comes up time and time again in the literature when you look at it. There's one other aspect of this, and, and I'm, I really have almost no time to talk about it, and I think it's very linked, is the role of the media, and, and the, the media in enhancing accountability. And, in, and, and one thing that's very consistent with the correlations, at least, if you look at them, the data, is that countries with free media tend to have politicians that serve much less time in office. Now, quite what you make of that fact uh, is, a, you know, I don't think there's a causal fact. Uh, it's a fact, though, that's very consistent with the view that there's something about the institutions for scrutiny, the institutions for political turnover, and the nature of accountability that's kind of a nexus that we need to understand and is linked. Now, there's a body of research now looking at the role of the media. It's kind of taken off as a bit of a research field. With work with Robin Burgess there, um, one interesting fact that, that, that came out from the Indian data was that countries that are that have got uh, more newspaper circulation as a kind of proxy for media penetration, tended to have uh, governments, uh, you can see it even better now, tended to have governments uh, that, uh, that uh, were more accountable in the sense of when there were droughts and floods, food aid and other things were shipped out more systematically to regions in areas where the media were better developed. Um, we also found, incidentally, as a corollary of that study, that greater political competition, too, appeared to improve the level of government responsiveness, consistent with something I talked about earlier. Um, I think the reason that's important, because you really then need to begin to get behind that. So why do some areas have more media circulation than others? Uh, of course, literacy is important, so there's another return to literacy from that. But it's also to do with the nature of the regulation of the media sector. And the one fact that came out in some work I did with, with uh, Andrea Pratt was that the, the sort of the real flag, well, there were two flags really in, in, in the media context that were quite worrying. One was state-owned newspapers. Uh, countries that had essentially monopoly in state-owned newspapers come out as being really bad on all, so, all sorts of other metrics. Again, causality is problematic, but, but those two things are strongly correlated with negative flags in the area of media freedom and uh, responsiveness. And the other is um, banning foreign ownership and foreign penetration of the media uh, appeared also to be another flag worth looking at uh, in, in that area. So those are two things that come out of that. I haven't got time to even show you the data and look at that. So I'm going to close now. Uh, what I hope I've convinced you of is that research in political economy in mainstream development economics is really now vibrant, it's alive and well, um, we worry about a lot of issues. I've given you only the uh, smallest flavor of some of the things we do worry about. 
and, and at the end of the day, it allows us to worry in a way, I think, that when I started to study development 20 years ago uh, or more, uh, the, these issues were simply not a staple part of the things we worried about. And I think it can only be a positive development for our field that this is true. And we're trying, in a sort of way that you do, I, I always think of research, actually, I, I think it was my colleague, uh, John Moore, who, who, who suggested this. Uh, research is like stumbling around in a darkened room. Uh, occasionally you bump into something and you discern its shape, maybe what it's made out of, and hopefully you get some insight into, into something through that. And I think we've kind of been stumbling around in that darkened room for long enough that we are beginning to sort of get a, a bit of a systematic knowledge of what's in the room and uh, what shape it has. But we're really a long way to, uh, from, from, from fulfilling the, the goal of trying to get all of the, everything lined up and the knowledge systematized. Um, and so much, much remains to be done. And, uh, and the, the International Growth Center, uh, who've laid on this event, is very keen to put these issues in political economy right at the center of the agenda so that we can carry forward the research in this area. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Tim. We're going to go straight away to uh, Mr. Naveen Kumar, and we'll take questions at the end. Mr. Miguel, Mr. Besley, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, I would like to thank Alice for affording me this opportunity to speak before this distinguished audience. You have just listened to the erudite lecture of Mr. Besley, which gave an excellent account of theory and research on this subject. My presentation would be on the policy and implementation issues. As I have to complete this presentation within a space of 15 minutes, excuse me if I rush you through. Bihar is a state of the Indian Union located in the east. In 2001, it had a population of 83 million, which should be close to 100 million now. Before I relate the story of Bihar of today, I would like to take you back in time. Bihar was once the global epicenter in the realm of knowledge, academic discourse, religion, and culture. It has been home to several religions, two of which, Buddhism and Jainism, originated there. Bihar was part of the Bengal Presidency, the first seat of British rule in India. The main source of revenue in those times was land rent. As part of the revenue administration, the British, in fact, East India Company at that time, introduced permanent settlement in Bihar and few neighboring provinces. While in the other parts of the country, the government dealt directly with the landholders, they brought in intermediaries called zamindars in the permanent settlement areas who collected the rent on behalf of government and were under contract to pay a settled amount to the government the system that continued right up to 1947, adversely affected Bihar in several ways. 
while the intermediary collected exorbitant rates, rents and levies, he passed on only the settled amount to the government. As a result, revenues remained low, severely limiting the capacity of the provincial government to spend on administration and infrastructure. Lack of infrastructure precluded private investment in industry, and in the absence of public and private investment, Bihar, in spite of its bountiful mineral resources, became a deindustrialized state. This, in turn, led to two consequences. Firstly, the mineral resources went to the users in the industrial areas. Secondly, without an industrial base, the state could offer little employment opportunities outside agriculture, which led to large-scale migration of labor to industrial centers and to plantation economies. Thus, Bihar became supplier of minerals and labor to more developed parts of the country, but itself remained agrarian and rural. After independence, it was expected that under the strategy of substantial state intervention, through centralized planning, Bihar's mineral resources would attract investment in industry. The policy of licensing was supposed to aid this process, but this possibility was offset by the policy of freight neutralization, which ensured availability of basic industrial inputs like coal, cement, and steel at the same prices throughout the country. In spite of the fact that Bihar was a historical disabled state, there has been no special treatment for Bihar in the five-year plans. The Finance Commission have indeed given weightage to backwardness and population in devising devolution formulas, but there has been no Bihar-specific comprehensive package. The state was bifurcated in the year 2000, and after which Bihar was left with two-thirds of the area, but three-fourths of the population. It lost all its mineral resources to the new state of Jharkhand, most of its power plants, and all major sales tax centers. The revenue receipts plummeted. When we look at Bihar of 2000, we find a huge development deficit. The state was at the bottom for most of the indicators, as you see over there. And you didn't have to go far to find the reason. The reason was a very low per capita development expenditure. When the present government took office in November 2005, they found that they had inherited an ailing state. The law and order was terrible. You could be relieved of your car in broad daylight in Patna, the capital of the state. If you were a transporter bringing goods to Bihar or passing through, your truck could vanish along with the crew. People would not venture out of their houses after 7 in the evening. Looking at the finances, finances were very weak, high fiscal deficit, large debt stock, low collection of state taxes characterized the state revenues. Administrative capacity was very poor. No recruitment had taken place for more than 15 years. Powers were centralized. Approvals took a long time to come through. The development expenditure was low. State plan, which provides for most of the capital investment, was very small in size. Health services were in shambles. Schools did not have adequate number of teachers. Large number of schools were without buildings. The new government thus had a huge task before it. It decided to handle the law and order first, as it was realized that without safety and peace, no other effort would bear any result. 
There were a large number of vacancies in the police force. As regular recruitment would have taken a long time, government decided to raise special auxiliary police by appointing freshly retired army personnel. 16,500 strong SAP, we call it special auxiliary police, popularly known as SAP, has been very effective in curbing crime. The process of filling up existing vacancy was initiated. Substantial allocations were made for police stations, residential quarters, vehicles, arms, and ammunition. A battalion of women's armed police has been raised with the empowerment of women in view. Many new police stations have been set up. Fast-track courts have been set up so that cases are heard on day-to-day -day basis. This has proved very effective as imposition of punishment soon after the culprit is nabbed has, is perhaps the best deterrent to crime. Government has given a clear and unambiguous message to the police force that they are fully responsible for maintenance of law and order and any leniency or lapse will not be tolerated. This has had a very salutary effect which this crime graph would show, you would see there is a structural break after 2004 in the trend lines, and all the crimes have fallen substantially. State finances were the next target for government's focus. Tax reforms were undertaken. The largest source of state revenue was sales tax. As part of a national exercise, Bihar was one of the first states to introduce value-added tax, and this has given rich dividends. Belying initial apprehensions, VAT has been growing at around 20% per annum. The VAT rates have been rationalized to bring it in harmony with rates prevailing in the neighboring states with a view to avoiding trade diversion. Similarly, transport taxes and levies have also been rationalized. Use of new technology is being made for ensuring better tax compliance. <coughs> All commercial tax offices have been networked through BSWAN, the Bihar State Wide Area Network, and a customized VAT MIS has been developed. Large leakages were noticed in excise duty compliance, and illegal brewing was also a big menace. The government has taken over the wholesale liquor business by establishing the Bihar Beverages Corporation. I would like to show you the result of these measures. You see, after 2005-06, the tax collections have gone up by a considerable, the rate of growth has improved a lot. This is VAT, this red line, and excise duty and transport. Okay. Now, as I said earlier, uh, the state had a huge debt stock, so it was decided that to begin with, borrowing will be curtailed, and the <coughs> finances of the state are composed of you know, own tax revenues devolution from the central government, and grants from the central government. And what 
it was noticed that the state was not making use of the central grants because most of these grants required a matching share from the state government. So the strategy adopted was to maximize absorption of these central grants by prior, placing priority in providing funds for these. The surpluses for development through prudent financial management. Full budgets were passed in March. Our uh, financial year starts in April, so the budget was passed before that. And powers were delegated to the various departments to consider and clear all the schemes. The procurement rules were simplified. New treasury code was brought in to take care of the computerization. Revised financial rules were drafted. And uh, as I said, the new technology was used for networking all the state treasuries through, throughout the state. And a computerized system of budget management was introduced. E-tendering has been started. We now move on to fiscal reforms. The state enacted a Financial Responsibility and Budget Management <coughs> FRPM Act, which is mentioned there, which laid down the roadmap for fiscal and revenue <coughs> deficits. And uh, I'm happy to inform you that uh, the state has achieved all these targets much before time. A new pension scheme has been introduced, which is based on defined contribution, and the old system of defined benefit scheme uh, uh, benefits has been given up. The debt consolidation has been completed. We published economic survey. A sinking fund has been uh, constituted to take care of the repayments, future repayments of borrowings and outcome and performance budget have been presented. Let me show you a slide. This shows, this is, the line on the top is the fiscal deficit. The one at the bottom is the revenue deficit. And you will see that from 2005-06, the state has been generating revenue surpluses rather than deficits. Administrative reforms. Okay. Maybe I'll just show you the slides. <laughs> so, the main thrust here was to fill the vacancies, to bring more people to handle the administrative work, <coughs> and service rules, streamlining, vigilance, things like that. Administrative Reforms Commission, that was important. Uh, the government set up uh, a commission which suggested many measures and uh, most of them have been implemented. Now we talk about development. The state embarked upon the 11th five-year plan in 2007 and the development objectives were inclusive growth at an accelerated pace accompanied by improved delivery of social services and sustained and gainful employment generation. This was the growth strategy adopted to substantially step up public investment for development, to create investment-friendly environment for private sector, 
focus on education and health for better service delivery. Foc uh, boost agriculture where Bihar is core competence and high priority for infrastructure development, redistributive justice and inclusive growth. Now, the government started investing more in plan expenditure. The state finances are looked at in two parts. One part of the expenditure is called non-plan expenditure, which is mostly revenue expenditure. The other is plan expenditure, which is mostly capital, uh, of capital nature. So you would see that the capital investments from 2005-06 have shot up. And this is the development expenditure. Again, from 2004-05, you would find that more and more money is being put in development uh, side. For investment climate, a number of legislative measures have been taken, acts like Single Window Clearance Act, the Bihar Infrastructure Development Act. These were brought in, and new policies, industrial policies were formulated, which provided for incentives to new units of industry, and also for expansion of capacity. A land bank has been established because it was found that for uh, uh, any uh, industry to be set up, land is a very uh, crucial uh, item and uh, uh, acquiring land is very difficult. So government is acquiring land and uh, making it available to the private industry. Closed sugar mills and distilleries have been privatized. Uh, uh, a blueprint for food processing industry has been prepared. SIPB stands for uh, State Investment Promotion Board, which I chair, uh, it has already approved 145 proposals. Uh, I want to talk about education and healthcare and agriculture before I close. Now, school education, SSA stands for Sarvshachabhyan, which means education for all. This is the national scheme uh, which is being implemented and which provides for uh, classrooms and teachers uh, for funding for which comes from government of India. Now this has been supplemented by the second uh, uh, scheme mentioned uh, there in the second line, uh, which is providing things like sports facilities, laboratory, uh, and money for taking children out on excursions. A large number of new schools have been set up and some schools have been upgraded. <coughs> Construction of uh, school buildings has been assigned to school education committees which are manned by the parents of the students. So government agencies are not doing the construction, it's the parents themselves. A, a large number of teachers have been uh, appointed. The student-teacher ratio which used to be uh, what, uh, 63 is to 1 has now come down to 53 is to 1. And after the current year's appointments, it will come down to 40 is to 1, which is the desired ratio. CCT stands for conditional cash transfer. So conditional cash transfer for improved girls' attendance. Money is given for their, uh, uh, for, for uh, 
uniform and for buying cycles for uh, bicycles for uh, girl students. MDM stands for Midday Meals, Teachers Training. Higher education, basically, there are very few higher education uh, institutions in the uh, state. So some high quality institutes have been set up and some more are coming up. <coughs> Healthcare. Again, the problem here was of manpower. We didn't have doctors and nurses, so these appointments are being made and capacity of the hospitals is being expanded. Diagnostic services have been outsourced. Uh, the last one, institutional delivery. Uh, this is a very important thing for both uh, health of mother and child. And uh, here there has been a, a very impressive progress, a tenfold increase within a period of three years. Agriculture. A four-year roadmap has been drawn up at a cost of rupees 60 billion. I think my time is over. Can I? Uh, I have two, two, three more slides. Okay. <laughs> so the idea here is to increase productivity and uh, also to expand coverage of certain crops like pulses and oil sales. Seed multiplication and replacement. This is a problem area in all developing uh, economies because the farmers keep on using the same uh, you know, stock of seed year after year. So here, what we have done is to give foundation seed to two farmers in each village so that they can produce the seeds and cater to the needs of all the farmers in the village. Kisan credit card, this is a new, uh, uh, new concept, uh, which is a credit card for the farmers so that they can use that money uh, for uh, purposes of raising crops and weather-based crop insurance. Then roads. Uh, a large road infrastructure program has been taken up uh, with 17, about 18 billion rupees. And uh, if you come to Bihar now, you'll find very good roads uh, in most of the places. MDR stands for the major district roads. These are, uh, those are all being upgraded. An equipment bank has been set up because co the contractors who are given work to make these roads, they don't have uh, equipments. So they can borrow from uh, this bank. And we are getting uh, uh, assistance from the Asian Development Bank and World Bank for uh, these projects. Similarly for power, uh, as I uh, mentioned right in the beginning, uh, after the division of the state, there was no power plant left in the state. So this is what they have been doing. Uh, the state electricity board un is being unbundled into uh, different utilities. Uh, the State Electricity Regulatory Commission has been set up so that when private players come, they get a good tariff. Then these are the, uh, some of the new, new units that are going to be set up. Long-term power purchase agreements. Uh, uh, the state is going to buy power from uh, private producers through these agreements. Now this is... Uh, <laughs> 50% reservation for women in village panchayats. And uh, 
There's time for questions. I, I just like to add that the actual number of women representatives today is 58%. So you can just look at this uh, slide. Well, we are acutely aware that we have a lot of more, lot more things to do. So, thank you. So thanks both to Tim uh, Besley and Naveen Kumar for those uh, very interesting talks. I think they really complemented each other. Tim's over, overview of, of the issues of accountability and elections and media in uh, helping to uh, lead to better policy outcomes. And in the case of Bihar, where you've seen all the effort that's gone in in so many different sectors uh, in, in Naveen Kumar's talk into achieving that sort of institutional change and, and uh, economic uh, change. So let me open it up to questions uh, and uh, just raise your hand and, and stand up. I'm not sure if there's a microphone to pass around. You guys have them, so please go ahead. And maybe direct your question to one speaker or, or both. Yeah. Uh, this is N.K. Singh, Member of Parliament from India. This question is directed to Tim. Uh, one of the classic issues which are invariably, Tim, debated in Parliament is, is India suffering from an excess of democracy? And to what extent many of the important developmental initiatives which need a bipartisan support across the spectrum in terms of judicial interference, in terms of distortionary subsidy, in terms of the lack of efficiency of public delivery system are being stymied by the democratic process. And the classic example which is often being quoted, is that of the large state of China, which has achieved far greater progress than India has been able to achieve. And media, as you know, Tim, is full of the India-China comparison almost on a daily basis. And is India, therefore, really suffering from an overdose of democracy? Conversely speaking, let me ask you the more hypothetical question that in your typology of presentation, you had only two classifications. One was Pol 4, and the other was regimes who do not conform to that particular yardstick. Could there be a spectrum where you have a little less of democracy and a little more of the other factors which contribute to higher rates of growth? And would classic prime ministers and finance ministers be ever able in a democratic regime to be able to combine good politics with good economics and when will good economics also make for good politics? Thank you. I think it's a, a, a really good question. And let me um, use it as an opportunity first to clarify something that I think I was arguing. Um, and second of all, to, to respond more directly. Certainly, uh, I think... To some extent, your comment is very much in line with what I was trying to achieve, which was to say that the most interesting stuff that happens happens within these labels, not between these labels. But somehow we get ourselves sidetracked into a debate about whether you're democratic or autocratic or whatever. I, was trying to, I think I was trying to emphasize that actually most of the interesting stuff happens within when we begin to say, why does one country differ from another? And I, you know, my own views, which I pushed in, in a number of places is that we, we need to, to just focus on how institutions work and lose the labels. 
Um, in the case you're particularly talking about, can there be sort of an excess of what you're calling democracy, meaning, of course, there's plenty of examples where um, the rate, the, the, there are things that happen within democratic systems which slow down the rate of progress, economic progress, through delay. And I think, I, I remember being in Bangalore on one occasion and, you know, they've been trying to build at that point, they, they eventually built the airport, but at that point they were trying to build these, these places to link the airport to the rest of the city. And then you just got to a point where the overpass stopped. And you, I remember asking someone, why did it stop there? Well, someone had a, made an objection, and their local uh, MP took up the objection, and as a consequence, they had to stop building the flyover. And in fact, as far as I know, it was never built. And you know, that could be a symptom of, if you like, excessive... Uh, delay, and I'm certainly wouldn't be claiming that you can't get into a situation where of a sort of scler sclerosis. But it does amuse me when, and this is a comment you hear from Indians a great deal. Of course, it's a great luxury to be in a position to be able to stand up and have a debate about the excess of democracy. It shows you really are democratic to be having that debate. <laughs> great. Uh, let's see. Next question, please. There's two points. I suppose the first is a, is a fairly obvious one to point out with the successful autocracies in Equatorial Guinea and Gabon right at the top is that they may have these tremendous growth rates, but to what extent have they benefited the population? Absolutely yeah. zero. Um, the second is looking at China as a successful autocracy, and, and it is a successful autocracy, obviously, in terms of uh, the, its fiscal stimulus during the, the global crisis, the fact that it was able to implement it so quickly, so much more quickly than the United States as a, maybe a gridlocked democracy, and that um, it, it's implemented that, the shovel-ready projects and so on, so it's coming out of the recession or appears to be much more quickly. And at the same time, it's an unsuccessful autocracy because, of course, the people continue to save at very high levels. Why do they continue to save? Because the Chinese government will not invent, invest in any kind of welfare or health services. And so they have to pay for their own health, their own welfare, think of their future and their old age. And uh, the result is that, uh, that it's got a very low domestic consumption and it's totally dependent on the rest of the world coming out of the recession and buying its products again. Very interesting question. Lots of aspects to it. And I'm sure a whole debate could be had on some aspects of what you, you say. But let me make one or two, two comments in response. One is that um, one thing we looked at, um, apropos your first point, uh, was looking at, uh, you know, we didn't just look at growth, we actually looked at a whole array of outcomes, <coughs> life expectancy, educational attainment, a whole variety of things to try and look at, not, we didn't just restrict ourselves today, I did, to the sort of narrow perspective of economic growth. And you're absolutely right. There are a number of countries that may have experienced economic growth, but there's no evidence that it's shown up in any other uh, uh, measures of well-being. So, so I absolutely agree with you. One wouldn't want to be purely focused on growth as an outcome. That was just to, for the sake of focus today. Uh, and we certainly worried quite a bit about, about that issue. Um, on the, on the, um, the issue of um, China's success, China was one of our case studies and I think I, the thing I was struck by, and I'm not, by no means, and I should emphasize this, I'm a China expert, um, was that there, there is real evidence of dimensions of accountability within the structures in China. And, and, um, and, uh, and I think, although you know, for, for many reasons it does not get counted as a democracy on the standard measures, for very good reasons, there are, there are some interesting aspects of the way the accountability structures work, from which I think we do learn something about what generates 
economic policy that's sustainable. And I think I don't, I haven't yet gone back and studied the processes by which the stimulus package was agreed and the kinds of debates. But um, but I think it is an interesting case study. I think you're in a sense making the point that there is a sort of element of responsiveness of government that we typically think of as characteristic of more democratic forms of government, where it's the media or it's parliaments or whatever who are agitating for fiscal stimuli. So there's something there, I think, interesting to be studied about why it is that a country apparently bereft of standard democratic institutions can still deliver something. But your second, on your third point, it's just too big a point, the whole question of the link, you know, what China is doing in its longer-term development strategy. Fantastically good question, but probably a whole panel's worth of debate. There was a hand up here. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, James Dean from the BBC World Service Trust. Um, could I ask you to reflect a bit more about this link between mass media and accountability, and, and particularly whether, to, to my mind, the, the best research that's been done on this is actually yours and Professor Burgess's on, on the whole link between mass media and accountability. And the question really is whether India is a special case, whether you can actually, um, whether the kind of lessons of a link of, of, of accountability and the demonstrable impact of, on, of accountability by the mass media and building on the work of um, Amartya Sen and so on, whether it's because it's such a massive market, whether it can sustain the kind of journalism and uh, media capacity that can enable the media to function like that, is it actually applicable to other countries, much smaller economies? Um, what's your feeling of where the debate is on that? That's a very good question. And to be honest, one could only answer that by doing much more detailed country-by-country country studies, and it would be nice to think that could be part of an agenda. It's not one I pursued. So commenting on the specifics of different countries' media markets is unfortunately beyond me. So I do only really know, to the extent I know anything about this, about, about India. But I, I think it does suggest there's a, there are a, a number of interesting questions about Indian exceptionalism. Of course, what I thought you were going to ask, and you didn't, which comes a little bit to our... our um, our friend from India here's comment before. Of course, many Indian politicians will complain that the Indian media is overactive. Uh, indeed, uh, I remember sitting on a, on a panel uh, in Italy not so long ago with a senior British politician who just basically spent the whole time complaining about excessive media intrusion in everything they do. I have to say, having um, been a little bit in the public eye these last three years as a member of the, the, the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. I have more sympathy than I used to uh, <laughs> for that perspective. But by and large, I, I guess, um, I, I guess you, know, you really are sort of finessing the issue once you can get to the point where you're trying to, to restrict media action, activity vis-a-vis public policymakers. But, but I think, you, well, you're, so, so unfortunately, I, I, can, I, I can't conjecture more widely, but I think it's a kind of question we really need to know the answer to uh, because if, if there is some exceptionalism here that means that we can't push the message if you deregulate your media markets, if you encourage entry of free media you don't get the returns you get um, I suspect there is a link back to democracy I mean presumably there has to be some formal accountability process that goes with this but, but unfortunately I, I just can only say it's a, it's, a, it's a great research question but not one I feel, uh, I feel competent to answer right now we're very lucky. Naveen Kumar is the former head of Indian National Television. So can you comment on I would like to ask you to jump in on this question of media and development in India, given your unique perspective as a policymaker. 
No, media. Media does play a very important role. Uh, you know, uh, in democracies, uh, where uh, you know various schemes are floated by various parties before uh, you know when they come to power, uh, they can go uh, very very off the track, and uh, the media there by reporting all the such deviations, uh, they do. Uh, uh, shape the public opinion, and uh, in any democracy, you know uh, the public opinion is very very important. And politicians, every four or five years, they have to go to Hastings, and uh, uh, they know uh, how uh, important the role media is playing. So we have a few minutes left. I've seen a few hands. There's one, two, three. Uh, Raj, the gentleman in front, and there I've seen already. Maybe I can accumulate a couple more and ask you to take, uh, maybe uh, ask quick questions, and then I'll ask uh, Tim and Naveen to answer sort of more jointly. So one here in the front, Raj, there's a hand here, and the gentleman in the front, and, and in the back. So very quickly, quick questions. Uh, could Professor Beasley say something about the importance or otherwise of effective political comp uh, competition within a one-party state? For example, via primaries. Could that have something to do with the China case, for example? Okay. Yeah, let's just keep accumulating them. So uh, this gentleman in the front also. When we are discussing about the, when we are discussing about the uh, development, we normally ignore the component of the state structure because it's a state which plays a very important role. Uh, if India is a soft state, then Bihar was a pulp state. And in that sense, uh, most of the places, whether it is China or any of the Eastern, uh, East Asian countries, it is the state which has played a very decisive role. So I think it is not the component of democracy which has played a role, rather than the state of the state that is most important. And in the context of Bihar, there is some sort of a resurrection of the state. Raj had his hand up next, and then there was a hand here as well. I have two questions for uh, Mr. Kumar. So you showed us a number of interesting graphs showing trend breaks around 2005 in government policies. And I was wondering whether you see similar trend breaks in outcomes like per capita income, literacy rates, and so forth. So did these government policies actually have a beneficial effect? And second, I was wondering whether uh, you have any insight as to why this change in political regime took place in 2004 as opposed to, say, 10 years earlier or something like that. Um, I wonder if you could tell me if your research noted any difference in growth between uh, democracies that have political divisions based on classic European class-based um, uh, polities and uh, countries that might have uh, democracy divisions based on ethnicity or other reasons. Okay, great. And there was one more hand in the front, gentlemen. If I, if I got you right, uh, you have a sinking fund into which you pay money for repayment of loan. And then you also show that you have been generating budget surplus. So if the job budget surplus and the money you put in the sinking fund are added, it may so happen that you are spending less than what you collect. directed at him, and then Tim can wrap up. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> about the... Uh, outcomes. See, this government has been in place for three years now. 
the measures that have been taken, some of these you can uh, measure the results immediately. For example, in case of education, uh, you see, in 2005, there were 2.4 million uh, students outside schools in the 6 to 14 age group. Today, it's only 700,000. So that you can see with these measures, uh, that improvement has taken place. Literacy levels have uh, definitely improved. The gross enrollment ratio has improved very well. So there are some measurable achievements. Uh, per capita income also, it has gone up. I, I, I did not show the slide for that, but the per capita income has, uh, uh, has been growing. Uh, this question about uh, a sinking fund. You see, sinking fund we set up only last year. Uh, what I showed there was uh, the surplus that you saw was revenue surplus. You know what happens is that the revenue receipts and the revenue expenditure, the difference of that is the revenue deficit. And if you, if you generate surpluses, we use that for, plan, for capital investment. No, because, the, the, yes. So uh, that is that. And uh, about the, why, why these uh, changes took place in uh, 2005 and why not before? Uh, there are many reasons for that. But you see, uh, prior to this uh, government coming into power, there was one particular party in power for 15 long years. And that was a phase in Indian uh, quality at that time, it's, uh, it was not confined only to Bihar, where more emphasis was placed on social re-engineering rather than on economic logic. And uh, I, I guess it is, uh, uh, that was one reason for this, where there was not so much focus <coughs> on development and uh, economy. And uh, then there were other reasons uh, in, uh, in case of uh, Bihar, a few things happened which, uh, because of which the party in power uh, deviated from uh, their agenda of development. And that's how this new party came into power. Thank you. Tim, you have the last word. Yeah, I, just qu quick, quest, quick answer to the question out there about class versus uh, other types of based political systems. I'm not really aware of any systematic evidence on that proposition. It sounds interesting, but I'm not aware of any. Um, on the question of primaries, primaries are sort of interesting in the context of one-party political competition. There's a lot written about them. Um, my f if you only ever read one political scientist, the one I recommend is a guy called V.O. Key, who is a political scientist of the American South, who wrote a lot about political institutions in a really insightful way that I think translates. Interestingly, one of his insights about the U.S. introduction of primaries was actually they were introduced in, in the U.S. South to shore up party power. And the reason was you knew who was going to run because they had to declare themselves in a primary. So it allowed you to, in a sense, outmaneuver somebody because they had to declare they were going to run. When you could do it just in a, in a sort of more cloak and dagger way, suddenly people would come out of the woodwork and try and enter. So actually, in some instances, there's evidence that primaries cement the power of parties rather than diminish it. Uh, and that's the example he particularly talks about in that context. I'm not saying that's a universal proposition, 
but it, you know, it's not entirely obvious. It can always enhance competition. And finally, the question of strong and weak states. It's something I steered away from in the presentation. I think it's really important. Let me say, uh, by way of advertising, that there's a session tomorrow afternoon on fragile states where these will be the central issues that will be debated. So uh, rather than giving a, uh, an imperfect uh, two-minute, one-minute answer now, let me invite you to come and take part in that debate tomorrow because I think those issues are, are really important. Great. Thank you all very much. <laughs>